through without any feedback, I always just put it down low because I'm a loud mouth and I overwhelm the mic. Would you please bow with me in prayer? Father, we thank you that we can gather in peace and in freedom, unlike so many of our brothers and sisters in the world, especially Ukraine. We lift them up, Father. Pray that they will feel your healing hand, your hand of peace on them. And I pray, Father, that as I am privileged to stand here, that you would keep your hand on me. And if I do say anything which goes astray from your holy word, you would wipe it from our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture this morning is uh, from Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. And I'm going to leave out a couple of verses because they introduce an entirely different subject, which would take three or four sermons to deal with. And he taught them many things in parables and said unto them in his doctrine, Listen, behold, there went out a sower to sow. And it came to pass, as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground, where it had not much earth. And immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, because it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And other fell on good ground, and did yield fruit sprang up and increased and brought forth some thirty and some sixty and some a hundredfold. And he said unto them, He who hath ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, they who were about him with the twelve asked of him the parable. And he said unto them, Know ye not this parable? And how then will ye know all parables? The sower soweth the word. And these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately and taketh away the word that was sown in their hearts. And these are they likewise, which are sown on stony ground, who when they have heard the word immediately receive it with gladness and have no root in themselves, and so endure but for a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution ariseth for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things entering in, choke the word, and it becometh unfruitful. And these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word, and receive it, and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. This is uh, an unusual situation for me as a preacher. Uh, what I am really is an evangelistic preacher. And uh, invariably, when I have the opportunity to present a message, I don't know, find out what it is until Saturday. And so there's never any title in the, uh, in the bulletin. 
But this topic came as an assignment because Pastor Greg is working through the Gospel of Mark. And it's actually a gift because this passage was instrumental in my coming to faith in Jesus Christ and being born into the family of God. Without making the story too long, in the spring of 1975, when I was more or less an agnostic, looking back, I'm surprised that Toby's father let me marry her. That was a Christian family, and I believed in science. Anyway, God decided it was finally time to deal with me, to show me that I was not okay, that I was a fool, and that my own strength was not enough to keep me going. At the time, I was terrified of death because I thought of it as the absolute end, as oblivion. So God put me through what I now recognize as a panic attack. I was convinced I was going to drop dead of a heart attack at any moment. And every doctor I saw told me, it's nothing but nerves, go home and rest. Easy for them to say. And when I had taken the last test that they knew to give, with no relief, I finally resorted to prayer. I told God I knew I didn't have any faith, and would he help me to have a little? That was all I knew how to ask. I grew up in an ordinary congregational church. I never heard things like the soul that sinneth it shall die. I never heard you must be born again. I'm not sure I ever heard that until Jimmy Carter became president and made it popular all of a sudden. Always before I had played games with God. This time, I asked from the heart. And that was when things began to happen. I attended a seminar on creation and the flood and was presented, to my astonishment, with enough scientific evidence to believe in the Creator. I was invited to Trinity Covenant Church in Manchester. And there on a Sunday in October 1975, I heard a sermon on this parable. As Pastor Norm Swenson explained the parable, not a visible light, but nonetheless a light burst over me. And I realized that there I was in Division 3. The seed had fallen on good soil but was surrounded by thorns, the sins of my life. Pastor Norm told us how to pray the sinner's prayer, and I did, silently. Immediately, I felt a huge weight lifted off my shoulders as Christ took away my sin. I took hold of the pew in front of me because I thought I was going to float off the ground. I felt so light. I thought that would look odd to the people around me. And afterwards, in talking with Norm, he told me that that was not the message he had prepared. He had planned to speak on another subject entirely. Realizing that it wasn't working out, he asked God to speak through him whatever the people should hear. I have no idea what God had for anybody else that day. But that was the time he had chosen for me to hear and understand the word the day that I would become the good ground in which the seed could grow and become fruitful. And he has sent me the opportunities to produce the fruit he wants for me, and I have used them to his glory. 
I can't claim any credit whatsoever because it has always been his Holy Spirit working through me. Sometimes I have failed to produce. It's my own fault for either not paying close enough attention to his leading or being, being fearful when I should have been bold. Ever since, this passage has been special to me and I am privileged to be able to share it with you. First, of course, is the sower. Obviously, this is God. But is it the Father? Jesus the Son? The Holy Spirit? Or all three acting together? Well, it's the Father's plan to sow the seed to redeem the fallen human race. The parable tells us straightforwardly that the seed is the Word. And the opening words of the Gospel of John say, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus the Son is identified simultaneously as the living Word, inseparable from the written Word, which we hold in our hands, and the seed. And it is the job of the Holy Spirit to speak to us, convicting us of our sin, and convincing us that we must receive Jesus into our hearts to wash away that sin and be reconciled to God. So the Father ordains the sowing, and the Holy Spirit scatters the seed, Jesus, into the fields of humanity according to his will. And we ourselves see the results of that sowing, just as it is described in the parable. As Jesus tells us, some fell by the wayside and the birds gobbled it up. And I've seen that myself. I was planting grass seed in a strip of ground right beside the road. And I had to be careful that none of it fell on the pavement because the sparrows would get it. And next is the rocky ground where there's no depth of soil. Because it's shallow, it's warm. And the seed will sprout quickly. But will just as quickly dry out and the young plants will wither and die. Third is the ground where the seed mixes with weed seeds that are already there. And because weeds always seem to be more vigorous, the good seed never gets a chance to produce a crop, even though it sprouts. And last in the story is the good ground, where the seed is free to sprout, grow unhindered, and produce what the owner of the field intended. And backing up a bit, who's the owner of the field? Who owns that field? God. Of course. He created it in the first place. And it was originally without weeds, without infertile spots, and without troublesome rocks. Adam and Eve lived in a garden where everything was perfect. We know what happened. They spoiled the creation when they committed that first sin. God cursed the ground. And from that time on, man has had to fight the battle of the weeds. Jesus told this parable to a large crowd as well as to his disciples. But as in all the other parables, the people didn't understand, and neither did the disciples. So when they were alone, they asked him to explain it to them. First, he tells them that the seed is the word. But what exactly does he mean by that? In the larger picture, the word is this book, 
which we hold in our hands, God's entire message to mankind. But that can't be what Jesus means because no one could hear and understand all that much at once. So it has to be something small enough to be grasped, yet completely fitted to accomplish its purpose. And what is that purpose? It's not just to sprout, it is to grow vigorously and produce fruit. A seed, no matter how small, is a complete package. It can be held in the hand. Some, with some plants, thousands can be held in your hand. Yet it can grow into something as large as a giant redwood. It can be nothing else than the gospel. Now we should always be careful to define our terms. What does the word gospel mean? Good news. We hear it used all the time to mean truth, but that's not the meaning of the word. The gospel is true, but it means good news. Well, Jesus then proceeds to describe what happens to the gospel seed when it is sown. <clears throat> the people by the wayside reject the word out of hand. Jesus says the devil snatches it away like the birds eating the seed, but that's because those people let him do it. We all know the devil cannot make you do anything. And in John 8, 44, Jesus declares that unsaved people are the children of the devil. And the devil wants to hang on to every soul he can. That doesn't mean that we should give up on them. Because we don't know if one day God will call them. My mother was a determined and deliberate non-believer all her life. It seemed of no use to witness to her, she would say some of the most frightful things about Jesus. And yet, I led her in the sinner's prayer on her deathbed. Now, as an aside, that convinced me that people who are on the edge can see things we cannot. My mother was in full possession of her senses and her will, and she would never have prayed that prayer if she hadn't seen something hidden from me. It might have been the gates of hell yawning before her. It might have been an angel. It might have been Jesus himself. And I know of many other cases like that. I'm sure you've heard of many. Next comes the rocky ground. People hear the gospel, and they get all excited, and say the words to receive Christ. But they think that that means they will never suffer again that they will become happy, healthy, and wealthy. Jesus has bad news for them. Becoming a Christian does not mean that we are taken out of the world and become immune to its turmoil and troubles. We do not get to become Charlie or Susie Bubbles. That's my name for those who think that all their troubles will be over once they pray that prayer. They do not acknowledge that they, like all of us, are sinners doomed to destruction. And when reality strikes that first trial, they fall away, disillusioned, and will not be there when the roll is called up yonder. If you or I have the opportunity to lead someone to Christ, it is our solemn obligation to warn them 
that this happens to every child of God, to everyone who has decided to follow Jesus. Remember what we read in the 23rd Psalm, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not if, though, sooner or later, we shall walk through that valley. Not the valley of actual death, the shadow of death, the feeling that we shall surely die if we, not, if we are not rescued, that we are lost forever. And God does rescue us. We don't walk into the valley, we walk through it. At the end of every valley is a peak, a mountaintop. Now why does this happen? It is because God wants us to grow, to grow in faith, in knowledge, and in wisdom, to become mature members of his family. And it's because he knows that we only learn the hard way. We tell our children, don't stand up under the table, you'll bump your head. What do they do? They stand up under the table and bump their heads and then they cry. God, as a loving and wise father, helps us to grow by letting us make mistakes and suffering the consequences. There's an illustration some of you have heard me use of a goldsmith. He takes a lump of gold and melts it in a crucible. And as impurities rise to the surface, he skims them off. He raises the heat and more impurities appear. And he repeats this process, heating and skimming, heating some more and skimming, until he sees his own face reflected without flaw in the surface of the gold. And that's what God is doing with his children. So that when he looks at us, he wants to be able to see himself reflected. He's engaged in making us more like Jesus. That relates back to the valley of the shadow of death. We reach the peak, and we can look back and see what we've learned and how we've grown. But God isn't finished with us. We've only begun the process of perfection. What comes after a peak? Another valley. Just as with the goldsmith, God wants to make us better and better. Now we come to the weeds and thorns in Division 3. A few of us had some discussion about whether these people are saved or not. We didn't really come to agreement on this. My view is that they are. I base it on the wording of verses 18 and 19, on a related scripture passage, and on my own garden experience. Let's look closely at those verses, 18 and 19. These are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lust of other things entering in choke the word, and it becometh unfruitful. Um, they hear the word. But there are things of the world they don't want to leave behind. It's instructive to read the description of the, these things in the Amplified Bible.
Then the cares and anxieties of the world and distractions of the age and the pleasure and delight and false glamour and deceitfulness of riches and the craving and passionate desire for other things creep in and choke the word and it becomes fruitless. That's a lot of stuff to leave behind, especially if you've been in, immersed in, in it for years. Even for Christians, possible to get distracted now and then by one temptation or another. But the passage does not say that the seed dies, merely that it produces no fruit. And here's where my experience comes in. If I plant some seeds, and after they have sprouted, I go away for a week, what am I going to find when I come back? I will find a mass of weeds about how carefully I cultivated before I left. And they'll be overtaking the garden. If I've gone even longer, the weeds will have completely hidden my desired plant. But I can still find them if I part the weeds. They're not growing. They certainly won't bear fruit. But they're alive. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 speaks of this situation. And let's look at verses 10 through 15. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. This is Paul writing. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let everyone take heed how he buildeth thereon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Now I can just picture these people, when they become what the world calls dead, rising through the heavens, trailing gigantic plumes of smoke like a space shuttle taking off. Everything they have spent their lives doing will be burned. They'll arrive in heaven brushing the sparks off the seat of their pants. They'll have no accomplishments to lay before the Lord, but they are there. Now this is a view that I find reasonable. I don't present it as unarguable. Others may come to a different conclusion, but whatever interpretation is correct, one thing is certain. No one lingering in this state is pleasing to God and is liable to severe discipline. Now, I also believe that most people in this situation, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, will sooner or later realize what is going on and ask the Lord to clear the weeds so that they find themselves at last in a cleared, cultivated, and well-tended field, which, of course, is Division Four, where they can become fruitful. I was blessed. 
in that as soon as I heard the word, my burden of guilt was sufficient for me to want to get out of the weeds just as fast as I could. The next question is how we become fruitful. First, of course, we begin every day by asking God to help us remain free of sin, to be able to resist the temptations which continually arise. A very helpful morning prayer is Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. I know I certainly have the times when into my thoughts come things that I'm ashamed of. And I ask God to know those and to take them away. Very important. We need to discover our spiritual gifts. Everyone born into the family of God received at least one spiritual gift. We can read about them in several places in the scriptures. For example, in Romans chapter 12, we find what we think of as big gifts like evangelism or being a pastor. We see all kinds of other gifts. The gift of hospitality, the gift of helps. Helps is a biggie. It doesn't seem like it, but the church couldn't function without people who have the gift of helps. They're the ones who we always find in the kitchen and cleaning things and fixing things. We couldn't function without those people. That's a big gift, even if we tend to look down on it. All the gifts are equal in the eyes of God if we exercise them as he has given them to us. And from my own experience, I would say that those gifts will align with your natural inborn talent. And it is in the exercising of, the, of these gifts that we grow and produce fruit. fruit. In Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, we read, Speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causing growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Every part doing its share, every soul in the church using gifts that God has given. In Ephesians 2.10, says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The good works, consisting of whatever tasks he assigns us and for which he has equipped us, are the fruit which he desires and in which he is pleased. So now is the time for each one here or watching on YouTube to ask yourself, where do I fit into this parable? Are you rejecting the word of God? Is some factor keeping you from belief? In my case, it was the theory of evolution. And that was taken away in that seminar. Are you disobeying the gospel, which says not only that we may be born again, but also that we must be born again if we wish to see heaven and avoid the eternal fires of hell. Are you in Division 2 singing, Happy days are here again, the skies above are clear again? 
expecting no clouds ever to appear on the horizon? Or have you indeed heard the word and believed it, but as I once was, are surrounded by unconfessed and unrepented sin? If after honest and unflinching self-examination, you find yourself in any of these conditions, then I urge you, I exhort you, I beg you even, to turn to Christ. Put him to the test. Ask him to reveal himself to you. And if you have never consciously asked him into your heart, and you want to know for certain that you are on the road to heaven, then please say this prayer after me, silently or aloud as you wish. Please bow your heads. Oh God, I know I'm a sinner. I admit to you that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for those sins and to purchase for me a place in heaven. Here and now, I ask him to come into my heart to wash me clean of sin. And I receive his free gift of eternal life. And I promise to follow him all the days of my life. Thank you, Father, for saving me. If anyone here prayed that prayer and you're comfortable telling us about it publicly, I'd 